0: First letter to the Corinthians, he speaks of the spiritual believer with this in mind. And he said, But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. People who are outside of God's plan for their lives, whether they're unbelievers or believers who are living in carnality, just don't get it when it comes to evaluating the thoughts, the motivations, and the actions of either mature or maturing believers in Jesus' Christ, They don't get it. The first chapter of Second Samuel is really just a continuation of 1 Samuel. So we're not going to spend a lot of time tonight in introductory issues. The same things that we said when we started this series, the life of David, apply. Now, they're originally one book. In chapter 1, the chapter that we consider tonight, two issues come up illustrating the point that Paul made in First Corinthians, especially the second half of that point, that the spiritual man is displaced by no man. Nobody can understand the spiritual man. And the, the implication is there, nobody outside of the body of Christ, nobody that's without the Holy Spirit, has the ability to understand the spiritual person. If they just don't get it. So there are two things that we see in Second Samuel chapter one that back up the point that Paul will make way later. in in history with regard to not understanding people like David. First, David is misunderstood by this Amalekite who brought him news of Saul's death. This Amalekite has no clue as to the character of David, what David's motivations, his thought, and his actions would be. And the second thing that is grossly misunderstood, not so much by people at the time, but by people today, the second thing in this chapter that we need to consider, is that David's love for Jonathan and Jonathan's love for David is grossly misunderstood. Grossly misunderstood. As the chapter opens, David has returned victorious from the slaughter of the Amalekites. It's the third day since he's returned home, and while the text does not say specifically, he must have wondered what became of the Philistine force that was marching north to face Saul. You remember, he was about to join that force when he was sent home, and then the whole squad of the Amalekites took place after David gets back to Ziklag and realizes that the Amalekites had raided, and burned the village, and taken all the women and children and all the Jews away. That's where we start off as chapter 1 of the of Second Samuel opens. Read along with me now if you have your Bibles. We'll take a look at the first ten verses. Now, it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the squad of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. And it happened on the third day that, behold, a man out of the camp of Saul, with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it he came about when he came to David, that he fell on the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, From where you come? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did things go? Please tell me. And he said, The people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen. And are dead. And Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. Verse 5. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, And behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered, I am an Amalekite. Then he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me, because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him, and I killed him, because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown, which was on his head, and the bracelet, which was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. The Amalekite may have been a mercenary who had joined Saul's army, in view of the account of First Samuel chapter thirty-one and its sister account in First Chronicles chapter ten, it appears as though this guy was present or nearby Saul when he died, but that he's lying about what actually happened. We know from these other accounts that Saul killed himself. That this Amalekite did not kill him. In fact, just in the last chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 4 and 5, to remind you, that passage says, Then Saul said to his armor barrel, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and pierce me through and make sport of me. Now remember, the 1 Samuel chapter 31 account is the divinely inspired account. The, we don't have to turn there, but the First Chronicles 10 account is also a divinely inspired account that mirrors this one. The divinely inspired account is this. Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword, pierce me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not do it, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. In verse 5, and when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died living. So this man's account, while he was probably there, he had to be there in order to get the crown and the bracelet. He had to be there to get that. He's not the one that actually did it. So he's lying. Saul killed himself, and this man is lying. We wouldn't think it's a very smart thing to do. We've probably read ahead, you know, it wasn't a smart thing to do at all to lie about this. But while this man is lying, we know that he had to at least be close enough to be somewhat of an eyewitness to these events. And he thinks, at least it looks like he thinks, that he's going to attempt to salvage something from this. He is one of the ones that escaped. He must have run for his life after this battle. He grabs the crown, and he grabs the bracelet. He's going to go down to David, because everybody knows David's going to be the next king of Israel. And he's going to try to salvage something from this disaster. Perhaps he can make it back to David, he thought. And he himself to David, thinking that David would be thrilled to learn that Saul, his nemesis, was dead, and he would reward him for bringing the news. Mount Gabor is about 80 miles from Zizrela. 80 miles north of Zechariah, where David is. So it probably took this young man three or four days to cover that 80 miles. Think about this for a moment. This is the third day since David had returned from his battle. So if we're to recreate a timeline here, we can't be ultra-precise, but we can come close. David was probably doing battle with the Amalekites at about the same time, that Saul was doing battle with the Philistines on Mount Gerboah. If someone ever made a motion picture out of this, they could make it in a very dramatic way. With David slaughtering the Amalekites about the same time Saul is falling upon his sword. They happened almost at the same time. Again, we can't be precise that it was exactly, but knowing the Lord's sense of irony, it might have been. It's ironic, I, I don't know if you remember the story, but back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God had commanded Saul to annihilate the Amalekites. And David had just returned from slaughtering a portion of the Amalekites. Now, one of the Amalekites claims to have killed Saul, the king who disobeyed God by not wiping out the Amalekites. It's interesting. We don't realize sometimes the ramifications of our disobedience. We think that it's just going to be isolated. But our disobedience can have far-reaching ramifications, and it's, it never is isolated. And Saul, because of his disobedience, ends up paying the price. So this man comes, and he thinks that by bringing the crown to David, and essence, he's almost crowning David king. He's showing he to brain. In essence, by bringing the bracelet, by saying Saul's dead, that he thinks David's going to be overjoyed for that. He didn't understand the man of God. David doesn't respond like this Amalekite thinks he will. In verse 11, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned, and they wept, and they fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, "Who are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien of the Amalekite. Stop here for a minute. Think about this. David just got back from slaughtering the Amalekites. This guy probably has no clue that David had just gone down and wiped out his brother. It's not a calling card to say he's an Amalekite right now. So David said to the young man, he told him, where are you from? And he answered, I'm the son of an alien in Amalekites. Then David said to him, how is it that you are not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointing? David called one of the young men and said, go cut him down. So he stuck him down and he died. And David said to him, Your blood is on your head, for you, your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. If David wasn't going to kill the Lord's anointed, this Amalekite alien, that sure going not kill the Lord's anointed. What was that Amalekite thought? What was going through his head when he saw David tear his clothes after he got the news? It probably was something like, uh oh, or whatever the Amalekite expression would have been. point he probably was. He played this whole thing role. But at any rate, done doesn't up well to be an as you can see. This man claimed to have done what David refused to do. David had an opportunity to kill Saul, but he refused to do that. The man manufactured the episode. He paid dearly for it. It wasn't the right time. The right thing has to be done in the right way. And at the right time, I might add, too, in order for it to be David knew that he would become king when God said he would become king. We're going to see as this narrative goes on. He's, it's, time, it's his time now. He's going to become king, first of the southern kingdom, and then of the entire kingdom is Israel. There's a principle that psychologists call projection. Freud is said to have originated this concept. And while I rarely agree with anything that Sigmund Freud said, This one seems to have at least a little bit of validity, the idea of projection. There's a lot to projection, and I don't intend to go into a psychological discussion. I I just want to take one little piece of this idea of projection tonight, because it's valid for our point here. Projection occurs when an individual projects one's own undesirable thoughts, motivations, desires, and feelings onto someone else. It's a fairly common concept. They have a certain way that they are, and they figure... Everybody else is that way, too. Again, there's more to the idea of, for so if you're a psychologist, I I certainly understand. There's a lot more to that. I get that. But at least this part fits what this guy is doing. He assumes that David would have the same motivations that he would have if he was in David's position. Remember, maybe I said, the spiritual man is appraised by no one. If you feel isolated, sometimes, and misunderstood sometimes when you're walking in fellowship with God, join the party. It means you're doing something right. not always, when you're misunderstood. (laughs) Don't be a jerk for Jesus and wonder why people don't like you. But I'm assuming you're walking in fellowship with God and people just don't get it. Don't be shocked. Whether they're unbelievers or whether they're believers that they themselves are not walking in fellowship with God, that's the way it is. People didn't get David. They didn't understand this whole thing about him letting Saul live. Because if it was them, they wouldn't have done that. This is a mistake. It was turned out to be a fatal mistake. People often this way. Not just this malice type, but a lot of people are this way. I am say all of us are this way at one time or another in our lives. Some people assume that others are going to cheat them in any business situation that they find themselves in. You know why? because that's what they would do if they were in that situation. So they just assume the other guy is going to cheat them. They assume others will lean for evil in a particular situation because that's what they would do in that situation. And we may be sitting here walking in fellowship with God, and other people will project a bad attitude that they have, that's something that's in their heart upon us, and assume that we're thinking the same thing. They try to read our thoughts. as well. I assume that that's what you were talking about. No, that wasn't what I was talking about that at all. That's what's in your life. Husbands and wives do this all the time with each other. because We kind of get to know each other fairly well. And it's not like that either. The first un- misunderstanding then in this text, in the first part of this chapter, was on the part of the Malachi. He assumed that David would be happy that Saul was dead because he would have been happy that Saul was dead if he was in David's position. And he wanted to use it for his advantage. That's the first misunderstanding that takes place. And the chapter is fairly straightforward. And I think all of us can relate to it. Because all of us have been the recipients of someone else's projection at some time or another. All of us have this misunderstanding. Sometimes it's vicious, and sometimes it's fairly innocent. But all of us have been, I think, the recipients of others' projections. The second misunderstanding that comes in the last part of the chapter in verses 17 and following comes from the lament. David composed for Saul and for Jonathan. This is a beautiful lament. We don't know how long it took him to compose it, but since David was a poet, he was a poet and a warrior, a very unique person. He writes this of Jonathan and Saul. Verse 17, And David chanted with his lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and told him to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. This is what this became known as. Behold, is, it is written in the book of Testosteron. Listen to this. It's a beautiful poetry. Your beauty, O Israel, is plain on your high places how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the strength of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain beyond you nor the fields of Alpha. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return with Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life and in their death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. Who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel? How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan explain on your high places, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war? The phrase that occurs three times in this lament, and it's still used in our culture, how the mighty has fallen. It begins and it ends the lament, as used in the middle as well. But the phrase that has been misunderstood by some and abused by many of those same people is the phrase that's found in verse 26. I draw your attention to that verse one more time. Isn't this a beautiful lament? Beautiful in all around because we know the story of what Saul did to David. But yet, after Saul's death, David still, I think, honestly, under the ministry of the Spirit, honestly could write these words about a man who was trying kind to of kill him for most of his life, for most of his life. He still, he still has an incredible eulogy, if I could call it that. But verse 26 has bothered a lot of people. It's been greatly misused and abused. He says in verse 26, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. David and Jonathan considered themselves to be brothers. They were that close. Although technically they were brothers-in-law. Because David was married to Michal, Saul's daughter. So they were technically brothers-in-law. The love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. If you were to do a Google search on this particular subject, and I did it, you're going to come up with over a million hits. In fact, I think the number is like 1.9 million. There's a lot about this on the internet. certainly after you get past the first few pages. The relevancy tends to go down a little bit. But it is it's something that's widely quoted. Widely discussed in our day. Many in the homosexual community see this terminology, they observe this terminology, and see David and Jonathan as being involved in a homosexual relationship. There was a time when pastors could completely ignore that kind of idea. But that's not the world that we live in today. So it needs to be. entertainment industry is overrun with homosexuality. And since we're a society dominated by entertainment, it follows that the entertainment industry and their portrayal of homosexuality as being normative is going to bleed over into the general population. Every minute of every day it changes, over capabilities. And there's some program on that is indicating that homosexuality is normative, and in fact those that don't consider it to be normative are almost always portrayed as some sort of Neanderthal. Sometimes they're kind enough to portray people who are not in favor of homosexuality as maybe being well-meaning, but maybe not well-educated, or something along those lines. But it's a problem. I put them, though, as someone who was invited to dinner several years ago out in California, with a number of writers of Hollywood sitcoms. And there were a lot of big name people at this luncheon. This lady that I know was one of three people that are at this luncheon that was not homosexual. I'm told that there were over 20 people there. All of the rest of the people that were there were writers of sitcoms. Not the that come, but they're ones that you would know of, and we wonder why in these portrayals, those in that community are presented in the best possible light. They're right. Here. It's always struck me as odd that rebellious people who give the Bible no honor at all sometimes still look to the Bible the validation of the behavior when they see it convenient, when they deem it convenient. For so, so they look at a passage like this, and they say, if you do happen to do that same Google search, you'll see it up over and over and over again. Well, looky here. David and Jonathan, the one openly gay relationship in the Bible. I'm going to show you in a minute, that's not at all a valid conclusion, but it is something that is a very popular idea. I have an article here that came out in January of this year. It said the BBC marks the anniversary of the King James Bible by claiming King David was gay. It's by Hillary White, the own correspondent for the BBC, or for, I'm sorry, for LifeSite News. London, January 19, 2011. BBC Radio 4 has marked the 400th anniversary of the publication of the King James Bible by claiming that King David, the Jewish king of the Old Testament, who slew the giant Philistine Goliath, was in the Bible's only gay relationship. On a litera- literary program, one of the series of the historic Bible translation, on study, January 9th, playwright Howard Britton claimed that David had been in love with Jonathan, the son of King Saul. Britton said, quote, To the secular reader, the story of David and Jonathan's love is obviously homosexual, the only gay relationship in the Bible. Britain acknowledged that the idea is controversial. King James Bible, approved by King James of England in 1611, is renowned even among non-Christians for its beauty. I'm going to skip down to where we get back to the issue. This is not the first time secularists and homosexualists have claimed that certain characters of the Bible, including Christ himself, were homosexuals. The profound friendship depicted between David and Jonathan is often cited by homosexual biblical revisionists, but others are frequently mentioned as well, including the love and loyalty between Naomi and and her daughter-in-law Ruth. The BBC is now routinely subject to criticisms of anti-Christian bias and its coverage of Christianity and related issues. In the lead-up to the visit of Pope Benedict to Britain last September, the BBC led what amounted to a campaign of anti-Papal and anti-Catholic programming that led Edinburgh's Cardinal Archbishop Keith O'Brien to accuse the broadcaster of being contaminated by, a, I quote, a radically secular and socially liberal mindset. Earlier this month, Catholic Herald editor and David Telegraph Call- columnist Daniel Thompson affirmed, nowhere in the BBC's output is less liberal bias more strictly applied than on Radio 4's Sunday program. If you didn't think you could actually hear a lip curl, try listening to any of its reports that involve Christian conservatives, Thompson commented. And this last paragraph is interesting. An internal memo, leaked in 2006, admitted that the BBC is dominated by homosexuals. And that some BBC executives are deeply frustrated with the corporation's commitment to political correctness and liberal social policy at the expense of journalistic integrity and objectivity. It really is. Serious. I was given an opportunity back in the mid-90s uh, to do an interview along with several other people, Dr. John Walburn and uh, Dr. Robert Leitner, and there were a couple other students there. They, they came to Dallas today to interview Dr. Walberg about pre fascinating because while the people were extremely nice, I mean just really, really nice, they didn't have the first clue about anything biblical at all. And in fact, what we did at that time, we decided no matter what the question they asked us, the answer was going to be the gospel, and we worked the gospel into every single answer so that they couldn't edit it. If they edited it, there would be nothing. But that's the BBC. And we say, "One, the BBC rotten woman. Well, i got to tell you. Well, American media is the same way, too. It's kind of a cool thing to do. And when Christians stand up and say, well, that's not cool, or that's not the behavior that God wants, then we're portrayed as somehow mean or, or less than enlightened. And that's not the case at all. I know that there are Christian groups that are quite unkind to all the churches. In fact, there's a group in the Midwest, unkind so I want nothing to do with them whatsoever. They use fine terms, they use hatred in their uh, report that makes what they say totally unlovely. It does not do anybody any good at all. And I totally disavow them in their methods. I think all Christians should. And most of you know who I'm talking about this group out of The problem is with the Homosexual people with a certain agenda is that they're projecting their sinful thoughts onto 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26. They need that, and since that's what's going through their mind, they assume that that must have been what's going through David and Jonathan's mind. I need to pause for just a moment and make sure that we're all on the same page today. Sexualities of It's not the of sin, but it is wrong. It's an action that's condemned by Scripture and should be condemned by all Christians, just like all sex outside of marriage should be condemned. It's somewhat hypocritical when heterosexuals who are guilty of engaging in inappropriate sexual behavior carry signs and loudly condemn with slurs the homosexuals for their sin. That's not the way to do it. So we need to be very, very careful about this and realize that those in the homosexual community need prayer. They need intense prayer. They don't need to be told that what they're doing is okay. That's not the answer. But they don't need to be violently assaulted. That's a crime. They don't need to be called names. That's a thing. Maybe they need to be confronted, especially when they're trying to make inroads into our children's lives and in other places. But we need to be careful how we do it. That's the point. Now back to the text. So, the term that's used for love here in chapter 26, your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. This is a, a form of the verb aha. It's a term that can be. In certain circumstances, can be used of a sexual relationship, but is just as often used of a friendship relationship. Man to man, woman to woman, and man to woman and woman to man. It's been a while, but with all due respect doing to doing Crystal and to make line in the film with Harry Met Sally, that has as its premise it's impossible for a man and a woman to have a friendship relationship that stays a friendship relationship that doesn't cross the sexual boundaries. When one is living in fellowship with God, moment by moment, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, it is very possible to have relationships between either male-male, female-female, or male-female, or female-male. It is possible to have that kind of loving relationship. And how did that become sinful? It better be possible because it's commanded. Go something like this. Love one another as I've loved you. It's commanded. We are commanded to love our brothers in Christ and our sisters in Christ with the same type of love that Jesus Christ has for us. And it's not a sinful love. It's an honorable love. I feel sorry for people that look at this passage that have never enjoyed, say a man to a man, that have never enjoyed the love and the friendship male to male. I feel sorry for people like that. There's nothing like it in the world. I feel sorry for women who would look at this passage and automatically assume the worst and would have never had the privilege of enjoying a love relationship that was honest and honorable and legitimate with a person of the same sex. And I would also propose to you that Christians ought to be able, Christian men ought to be able to love Christian women, as I'm going to try to paraphrase Paul Paul here, as a sister in all purity. And women should be able to love Christian men in the same way. There are certain boundaries that are placed on certain relationships. And when it comes to love that has a physical component, That comes within the boundary of marriage. And that's a special thing. But there's a different kind of love, a friendship love, that doesn't include that privilege that all of us are commanded to have. This thing with David and Jonathan is so special. The only thing that I could think of today from a cultural standpoint that I think could illustrate this that most of us would remember is two characters. From the film Wolf and Dove, the Larry McMurchin film. Gus and Carl. Two Texas ranges that have been together by the time you get to the film Wolf and Dove for a long time. And the scene where where Gus is dying because of his stubbornness and calls there with him that room in Montana. It's like that scene in Field of Dreams. When Kevin Thompson goes out to have a photo ball with his dad. If there's a dry eye there that you just don't have a heart. Because when God is dying and calls there, you see the love between these two friends that was so deep and so intense, there was nothing like that. And that's what was going on between Jonathan and David. It was covenantal love. It's a special love. It's a real love. It's an honorable love. Throughout history, this concept has perplexed under Roman pagans used to hear of Christian love feasts. Now, love feast in the first century, first century love, was usually synonymous with the communion service. So they would have a communion service that lasted all day on Sunday. That was their custom. And they would have a feast and a meal that would be associated with the Lord's table. And the Romans, because of their projecting their own attitudes upon the early Christians, assumed that these were origins. You read about it in first century literature. Because that's the norm for them. And they assumed it would be the norm for this group of people called Christians. They had not a clue. They could not have praised the spiritual man. The use of this particular verse as a validation for homosexual behavior is absurd, to say the least. These two men had a friendship that was deep and it was intense. But there's no indication anywhere of any kind, including any grammatical indication, that indicates that this was anything but an honorable relationship. It's an insult to imply that it was anything but honorable. And I really wish that I didn't have to address this at all. But that's the world that we live in. David was misunderstood then, and he's misunderstood now. Fortunately, The Lord knows the truth.